Welcome to the New Heights Show on Education. I'm Pamela Clark, founder and director of the New Heights Educational Group. And I'm here with David Smith, the founder of Silicon Valley High School, who has helped us get these podcasts produced and delivered to you. Yes, Pamela, when we saw the great things that you and your army of volunteers were achieving at New Heights, we wanted to get involved. We're happy to work with you to leverage the internet and make quality education accessible and affordable to everyone, everywhere. Thank you, David. We appreciate Silicon Valley High School helping us to get these podcasts out to the hundreds of thousands of listeners from all over the world. So I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to New Heights Show on Education. This is your host, Kathy Woodring. This week's topic is the good of corporations. Right now, you might be struggling through your classes or even failing them. You might be worried that you may not finish high school. There might have even been a thought that you may not be smart enough. Well, the New Heights Educational Group begs to differ. We not only think you are smart enough, but with our help, you will complete your high school diploma. The New Heights Educational Group strives to improve your academic success through its tutoring services. To learn more, please visit newheightseducation.org and contact us. New Heights Educational Group, educational resources to help reach your goals. Now to the show topic, the Good of Corporations article. Before beginning the Good of Corporations article, the last episode describing the nature of rights will be finished, which ended with stating that Hamilton was Weary both of the French Revolution's anti-clericalism and of its radicalism, which sought to solve all human problems by reducing them to matters of, quote, simple and incontestable principles. Like Edmund Burke, all human problems are re- Hamilton. Like Edmund Burke, Hamilton thought that this armed atheist ideology was something new and horrible in the world. This concern is reflected in 1790s American politics, when the insult of atheists was probably hurled more than in any other decade of our political life. When the Federalists accused Thomas Jefferson of being an atheist and the Jeffersonian Party of being dominated by atheists, they were claiming essentially that the Jeffersonians were moving in the French direction and becoming too much like the Jacobians, a violent faction that executed tens of thousands during the terror, all in the name of French revolutionary principles. John Adams, while agreeing with Jefferson on the principle that the French ought to have a free Republican government, firmly opposed the importance of the French Revolution. In correspondence with Jefferson, Adams denounced the revolution not for being too rational as Burke and most modern conservatives conservatives do, but for being too irrational. He argued that its leading lights, Voltaire, Diderot, Rousseau, and so forth, were all totally destitute of common sense. He attacked their philosophy as pure and unadulterated atheism, in which spirit was a word without meaning, liberty was a word without meaning. There was no liberty in the universe. Liberty was a word void of sense. Every thought, word, passion, sentiment, feeling, all motion and action was necessary. All beings and attributes were of eternal necessity. Conscience and morality were were all nothing but fate. This was their creed. 
Adams concluded sardonically, and this was their perfect human nature, and convert. And this was to perfect human nature, and convert the earth into a paradise of pleasure. Adams also recognized the dangers of the French concept of sovereignty. He saw that tyranny and oppression likely follow once it is claimed that all sovereignty resides in the nation and that politics merely consists of applying that sovereignty in some simple and direct way to any problem that comes along. Turgot and other French philosophers argued that republicanism's inherent virtue required only a powerful unicameral legislature, where this virtue would be displayed in a very weak executive. Adams wrote a treatise totaling more than a thousand pages defending our state constitutions and their their bicameral systems against the philosophy's criticism. He explained that if a constitution concentrates all political power in one body, in one set of hands, the government that it produces will surely become despotic. Liberty, he continued, is secured through checking power, and the way to do this is in the legislature, is through bicameral bicameralism, where the upper house and the lower house divide the legislature's power, check its unconstitutional ambitions, and make it more deliberative. America's welfare state. More amenable to French than American thought of theory of rights, the contemporary understanding of the welfare state and entitlement rights has more in common with the notions of rights and alienation of rights promulgated by the French Declaration of the Rights of Man than with the Declaration of Independence. Initially developed in the Progressive Era in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the concept of the welfare state can be traced back to Rousseau's version of the social contract. Elaborated quite candidly by President Franklin Roosevelt in some of his major addresses, this understanding claims that the people give government power and that government gives the people rights in exchange The entitlement theory is entirely a positive law theory of rights. Rights are created by the government. They are the gift of the government to society at large. So they are hardly natural rights. 20th century progressives and liberals abandoned the language of natural rights, not because they forgot these concepts, but because they believed that the most important right of citizens are not individual rights granted by nature, but collective rights granted by society. The only question of justice, therefore, is how government should distribute these rights, whether equally or unequally, to which groups and under what circumstances. In the Declaration of Independence, however, government is always limited government. It is limited because its purpose is to secure the things that individuals already possess, the things that nature and nature's God have already given them. These are natural gifts, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, property in our our own bodies, and ability to acquire more property by the use of our faculties, and so forth. 
Nature has given us these gifts because of the kind of beings that we are, rational beings, who possess rights and duties and, therefore, a certain moral dignity. A right to health care, a right to a job, right to education, unemployment insurance, these things are not gifts of nature. They cannot be natural rights. They are highly artificial, highly conventional rights. They are the products of a certain kind of society and are possible only in a technologically advanced culture. In a way, 20th century liberals understood this. Even as they campaigned to increase the number of rights and to expand the categories of rights, they were very careful not to argue that these rights stemmed or could be compared to the natural rights in the tradition of the American founding. They recognized that natural rights point to a very limited government, while the new rights point to a constantly expanding and enlarging government. The new doctrine of rights derived from Rousseau's and the French revolutionary experience establishes a perverse and vicious cycle. Because these rights are creatures of government, the theory goes the people need not worry about big government and need not be jealous that government is going to take away their rights or infringe on their rights as George III had done. The people need not fear government, so they need not try to limit it. it. The people can't let it expand and let it do more. The people can let it expand and let it do more for them because the more power individuals give to government, the more rights it returns to them. Of course, in trying to do more for the people, government may end up doing more to the people. The 20th century gov- growth of American government is justified very much along these lines. Political tyranny came to be no longer regarded as a danger. In, fa- in fact, Franklin Roosevelt said this explicitly in some of his speeches. According to Roosevelt, political tyranny was defeated in 1776. Instead, our problem today is economic tyranny imposed by big business, the Republican Party, and the fat cats ruling behind the parapets of property. They are ruling not out in the open and democratically, but surreptitiously and conspiratorially in the dark, ruling for their own benefit and trying to impress a new serfdom on the average American. According to Roosevelt, the only way to relieve this economic oppression is through the growth of government, which alone can conquer big business and big labor. This is the 1930s formula, which in many ways persists today, albeit in updated form. Liberals have shifted their arguments and methods somewhat over the years in order to protect their gains from a conservative resurgence and prepare the way for future gains. To protect the notions of evolved rights, they turn to the progressive theory of a living constitution. First promulgated on the national stage by Woodrow Wilson, this theory holds that all branches of government must be freed from the straitjacket of the constitution, that our institutions should evolve in pace with social evolution, that politics should anticipate the course of social evolution in order to direct society and make it more equitable. 
In the first six decades of the 20th century, the presidency took the lead in this regard, in many instances opposed by a conservative judicial branch. But as electoral support for liberalism withered away, the left looked to advance its aims through the judiciary, where they had gained control as a result of liberal judicial appointees. Now that the courts have tacked right, liberals are looking to other branches of government and may leave the judiciary on the back burner for a while. The left now defends upholding important precedents rather than gaining new ground through court rulings. By shifting their institutional strategy, liberals may be able to consolidate their gains in the 21st century. Conclusion Conservatives have often expressed suspicion that natural rights philosophy necessarily leads to something like the French Revolution, but these fears are misplaced. Not all creedal revolutions are created equal. It is the precise nature of their principles that really matters. Conservatives should not be wary of adherence to natural rights creed of the American founders. moderated as it was by the temperamental virtues of the Scottish Enlightenment. Instead, they should be on their guard against the Rousseauian creed that, under the guise of liberalism and progressivism, has slowly supplanted the natural rights theory on which our nation is grounded. Now to the show topic, the good of corporations. This podcast is brought to you by Silicon Valley High School. The world's fastest-growing, video-based, self-paced, teacher-supported, fully-accredited online school that's recommended by more than 96% of students. Take individual courses at just $95 each or earn your high school diploma at any age. Check us out at svhs.co. From Heritage.org, an abstract from this article. Americans rightly cherish freedom of association as the necessary condition of a civil society that is not absorbed by the state. Legal protections for corporations recognize that associations are a natural part of human life. The good of individuals is dependent upon the ties that bind us and legal protections for human life. And legal protections for corporations are deeply embedded in Anglo-American jurisprudence, partly for that reason. Today, many are skeptical that corporations should be afforded legal, legal rights because they see examples of irresponsible behavior vindicated in courts in situations where the corporate form appears to be a sham. Yet these real examples of bad behavior ought not to be used to justify encroachment upon corporate rights writ large. And the importance and the importance bad behavior and the importance of little platoons to American life cannot be overstated. The recent decision of the Supreme Court of the United States in Hobby Lobby case raises important questions concerning the rights of corporations. That case purportedly interpreted only one federal statute, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, or RFRA, and held that closely held for-profit corporations 
are considered persons under that act capable of exercising religion. Yet the status of corporate powers in American laws goes beyond RFRA as the rights of corporations include rights under the Constitution as well as rights in contract, contact, contract, tort, or employment law. What, what exactly are corporations? Are the rights and duties of the corporation in any way comparable to those of the individual citizen? These questions involve deep legal issues, such as the standing of corporations to sue in court under Article Three of the Constitution, and deep political issues concerning the right of the federal government to curtail the activity of associations that enter into conflict with the responsibility seemingly conferred by Congress by the Constitution. They also, however, connect with deep moral issues concerning the place of free association and the experience of membership in life of the individual. Individual Americans rightly cherish freedom of association as the necessary condition of a civil society that is not absorbed by the state. They are aware of the long history of volunteering that has conferred on their country stability in peacetime and security in times of conflict. But they are also aware that there are criminal associations, conspiracies, mafias, and subversive groups that they have become even ever more suspicious of corporations, and especially the large corporations, some of which are more like screens behind which their directors escape from liability than real persons in law. It is useful, therefore, to reflect both on what is meant by corporate personality and on the very real social goods that are protected by it. It is, is the idea of corporate personality coexistive with that of corporation in American law? Why pro provide legal protection to corporations at all? The idea of corporate personality. In U.S. law, the corporate form was original, originally conceived on the English model as an artificial entity created by a grant of patent. Corporations were not free associations of citizens, but bundles of rights defined by the state. During the course of the 19th century, however, it became increasingly recognized that corporations could be created by the citizens themselves. People could associate for some purpose, and this association would be treated by courts as an independent legal entity with attendant rights and duties, whether or not the individuals ever approached the state for official sanction. The charges in American and British law were haphazard and were not dealt with by the courts, either on the basis of any settled philosophy of corporate personality or on the basis of the relation between the personality of the corporation and the personalities of the individuals who compose it. What is evident, however, is that this was a spontaneous development that both respected the real intentions of the individuals involved and provided security to spontaneous forms of social life. 19th century Anglo-American commentary is ambiguous on this subject. 
Some jurists opt for the legal fiction theory, others for the idea that corporations are reducible in some way to their members. The view that corporations are constrictions and not part of the fabric of reality, mere legal instruments that enable us to simplify relations between people that could be expressed more truly, though more cumbersomely in terms of the contracts that bind them, is natural to individualists who see these who see institutions at provision as provisional and fungible no more lasting than the agreements that bring them into being and to be explained and justified in terms of our individual needs and purposes but this view fits ill with the history of our civilization it is important to insist at this point that the legal idea of incorporation is not the heart of corporate personality, but only the shell that protects it. Corporate personality as such informs and precedes any legal definition and any assignment of rights and duties at law. In turn, the legal rights and duties foster the growth of private associations and impact individual rights and duties. The idea of corporate personality is indeed far older than the modern corporate form, and its foundations lie deep in our nature as political animals. Medieval society was not composed of individuals. It was composed of bishoprics, abbeys, orders of knighthood, universities, schools, guilds, courts, and parliaments. When the modern concept of the individual began to fight its way to the fore, the Renaissance and the Reformation, it was not in order to stand alone amid a ruined and atomized world, but in order to make new institutions comparable in in many ways to those that the Reformation destroyed. Society was composed, as before, of schools, universities, churches, clubs, and orders, and there arose in the 17th century Holland and Britain those extraordinary institutions limited liability, insurance underwriting, the joint stock company, and the stock exchange that separated commercial corporations from individuals who composed them and endowed them with a life of their own. The next episode will continue with the good of corporations. I believe Maria has joined us. I'll see if she is is, uh, online. Hi. Are you online, Maria? Hello, is Maria with the show today? Yes. Hi, Maria. Yes, I am. I'm sorry I didn't notice that you had signed in until just a few minutes ago. If you would like to read the end of show comments, if you have them on hand, if not, maybe we can do some work together the next episode. Or is there some uh, comments yes, you would you like to make? Is, no. Is there actually, any comments? No comments. Um, All right. I have no comments. All right. Okay. I'll finish the show and maybe talk to you later. I'm sorry okay. I didn't get with you earlier. Thanks for oh, no problem. Don't worry. For ch- checking in. 
I'll finish up and I like your show. you have a you have a good Memorial Day. Oh, you too. I'll fin thank you. I'll finish up with a quick note from the June first, twenty fourteen episode. The Life of Samuel Adams, Part 2. This Wikipedia entry continues. Officials such as Governor Francis Bernard, believing that common people acted only under the direction of agitators, blamed the violence related to the Stamp Act riots on Adams. This interpretation was revived by scholars in the 20th century who viewed Adams as a master of propaganda, who manipulated mobs into doing his bidding, For example, in what became the standard biography of Adams, historian John C. Miller wrote in 1936 that Adams, quote, controlled, end quote, Boston with his, quote, trained mob, end quote. Some modern scholars have argued that this interpretation is a myth and that there's no evidence that Adams had anything to do with the Stamp Act riots. After the fact, Adams did approve of the August 14th action because he saw no other legal options to resist what he viewed as an unconstitutional act by Parliament, but he condemned attacks on officials' homes as, quote, mobbish, end quote. According to the modern scholarly interpretation of Adams, he supported legal methods of resisting parliamentary taxation, petitions, boycotts, and nonviolent demonstrations. But he, but he opposed mob violence, which he saw as illegal, dangerous, and counterproductive. Thanks, Maria, for signing into the show tonight. You're welcome. Good night, Maria, and good night to everyone. Have a enjoyable Memorial Day and wonderful weekend. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to rate us and follow us on your podcast player. Check out our show page, radio.newheightseducation.org, for monthly announcements and other happenings. Imagine your new bathroom, a sparkling new tub, a modern shower conversion, a seamless new wall, all done in as little as a day. Introducing Bathfitter. Join over 2 million customers delighted with our one-of-a-kind remodeling process. No demolition, no mess. Guaranteed for life. Installed in as little as a day. Book a free in-home consultation at bathfitterpodcasts.com and get our best offer of the year right now. Bathfitter, 35 years of better bath remodels.